Welcome to Mint On Air and Client Corner. Perspectives from founders, financiers, and friends. I am Josh Fox. As listeners of this podcast know, each episode features an entrepreneur, an investor, or a member of the startup community. We discuss what it is like to start a company, the challenges associated with running and building a business, and how rewarding it is to be part of a startup. My guest today is Carlos Araque, co-founder and chief executive officer of Quays Energy. Carlos, welcome to the show. Thank you, Josh. Very, very happy to be here with you doing this today. Carlos, we've been working together for over five years on Quays Energy. What is the mission of Quays? So Quays is about unlocking geothermal energy at terawatt scales. To me, the energy transition has a giant gap when it comes to industrial heat and all of the processes that run from industrial heat. And I think Quays is uniquely positioned to allow geothermal energy to repower those industrial heat processes at a very large scale. How does Quays plan to go about achieving that goal? So the core innovation, this is a technology company, the core innovation is about drilling deeper, hotter, faster than ever before possible. I come from the oil and gas industry. I understand drilling very well, but I also understand that existing technologies cannot quite do the job for geothermal. So Quays is developing and advancing the state of the possible, the art of the possible with drilling technologies to unlock geothermal, no matter where you are, at temperatures that are have been impossible in places other than the typical geothermal provinces like Iceland. Could you tell us about where Quays is in this stage of its development, both you know, its corporate life cycle as well as product development? What has it done to date with the technology? So as a company, Quays is still a relatively early stage, pre-revenue, venture-backed technology company. We started the company in 2018 after 10 years of work at the university at MIT. I wasn't involved with that academic work, but I started the company in 2018 to start that commercialization journey. The best way to summarize it from the perspective of Q4 2023 today is to say that we've managed to scale the technology in the lab as far as it's practical. You know, in order to continue to scale, we have to get out of the lab and into the field. And we're now building the first ever field deployable demonstration units. They're not quite commercial products, but they will allow us to go out of the lab, continue to scale, bring deeper, hotter, faster, and increasingly get into that geothermal goal. That will happen as early as 2024 next year. So that's the critical junction where we find ourselves at. And given all that you have been doing and your plans for moving the technology forward in the way that you've described, Quays, like so many technology startups, needs to raise a significant amount of capital. How much capital has Quays raised to date from outside investors? And to the extent all of this is publicly available, could you talk about who those investors are? Yes, certainly. So Quays has raised $75 million, mostly from venture capital investors. We've received a $5 million award from the DOE very early on, and I'm counting that in the 75. That money has come through a series of investments, series seed, a couple of series seeds, one series A, and that has been 
primarily targeted to build a significant team. We're 40 people now. We're over 40 people right now to build a significant team and actually start developing and acquiring these capabilities ourselves. These are very expensive undertakings. The capital expenses are just for the equipment to be able to do the job are significant. We, for example, use a device called a gyrotron. These are microwave sources. And you buy them in the markets, you know, for three to five million dollars a piece. So just to be able to play, you have to start having access to tens of millions of dollars. And as we step into the field going forward, it's going to get into the tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars, because you're mobilizing entire drilling crews and development personnel. The key investors that are in the public domain include the Engine, which is the venture fund from MIT, Vinod Kosla, who personally was an early, very early investor. He was the one who convinced me to do this. Neighbors Industries, which is one of the largest drilling companies in the world for oil and gas. Fidelity, through their ventures arm, Fly Structure Ventures. Prelude Ventures in California. Um, and Safar Partners in Cambridge, Massachusetts. There are about 30 investors in the cap table. And only two strategic neighbors is one of them. The other one is Tech Energy Ventures, which is related to Tenaris, a pipe manufacturer company. So all in all, very, very strong support, not only from venture, but also strategic investors. And in answering that question, Carlos, you mentioned that back in 2018, Vinod Kosla convinced you to do this. What <laughs> was it that he said? So Kosla, basically, I mean, one of the... Big things that he said to me that struck me and that I identified very strongly with. He said, like, Carlos, what's the probability of success here? And I said, I, you know, from that perspective, I think it's improved in the last five years significantly. But from that perspective, that early on, I said, 10%, you know? And he said, and what's the probability of impact? And I said, well, if we succeed, we change the world. And he said, well, let's do it. There's no reason, there's no excuse. If you have a, even, a 1% probability of changing the world, there's no reason why we should not do it. So that's it. Basically, it told me, do things that matter. Do things that are consequential. You'll find a way. You know, don't play it easy. Don't hedge because the world needs these technologies. So that was the beginning of that journey. He also told me, you know, as a founder, I, I gather a very strong technical background and um I had been working in venture for a year by that time. So he said, you uniquely represent a couple of skills that are very hard to find together. So I think you're very, very well positioned to be a founder. Go take it forward. I'll give you the starting capital and off you go. So it's inspiring for, for me to hear about that, that story and, and the, the feeling that you had and that you've continued to have. And I know you, you carry forward to this day about your potential to, to have a major impact on the world around us. Thank you for sharing that with us, Carlos. You mentioned as part of being a founder, you know, the things that you thought about. Was this the first time you had ever founded a new company? Indeed. The first time doing something like this. I consider myself as a person not very risk averse. I, I, I like to take risks. I like to get into exploring new boundaries. I don't like to play it safe. And that's been forever with me, you know, since the very beginning of even my life back in Colombia. But to start a company like this is quite an entirely different thing because you're going to need an army of supporters and you're going to need to convince that army of supporters to follow you on this mission and to make it their mission. And I had started small companies before, but not a technology venture back company. So now looking back on what it was like to found Quays, what, what do you think was most challenging about 
forming the business? So I think these companies are very capital intensive. You know, just to be able to do the job, you have to be playing in the millions, tens of millions of dollars. So one of the fundamental challenges is how to build a very good narrative and a very good strategy around building your capital staircase. And the analogy I like to give is, let's start with the end in mind. You know, how much money is it going to take to succeed here, to be commercial? And I put that number at $1 billion. Of course, nobody's going to give you a billion dollars from day one. They shouldn't. So how do you build a staircase to get that? And that is very much the challenge. How, what do you do now for $5 million? to achieve some piece of evidence that allows you to then ask for 50, to achieve another piece of evidence that then allows you to get 500. And you're jumping, you know, in orders of magnitude. But that, that's been one of the key parts of learning how to move these companies forward and how to move the company, the investors and the teams with you along the way. Very interesting analogy, the, the building the staircase, Carlos. Let me ask you about climbing the stairs. So once you've gotten past the first stair or two, which to me is forming the business and starting to raise capital. What what do you look back at over the years that you've been doing this and think about in terms of the challenges after you've kind of gotten past the first step or two? What what are you focused on now in terms of getting to the next level? So I think from today's perspective, looking forward, we start the transition potentially away from early stage venture and into more mature venture or even private equity infrastructure, other types of capital. So the challenge is always how do you, what do you have to do to be appealing to this type of capital and the mandates they have? They don't quite have the same risk appetite and they don't quite have the same reward expectations. So you have to be able to synchronize your development technical and business development to the emerging capital that becomes relevant for you. I think for us, for us, the next phase starts to be increasingly strategic. We've been a little bit shy to get strategics in just to make sure we keep maximum optionality, but it's unavoidable that we'll start to get into more strategic capital as we move forward. And by strategic, I mean people that are in our business spaces, commercial spaces, like the oil and gas industry at large, like thermal generation or industrial manufacturing. Those will become increasingly important, and my job is to convince them that we have something in here that they will find valuable and that they will want to invest in. Advancing science and developing and commercializing technology like you've been doing at Quasar, major undertakings filled with challenges, often failed experiments, unanticipated obstacles. Have you had any scientific or technical setbacks so far or or other failures in the business? Any unanticipated obstacles that you could share with us? Very much so. I think it's it's part of moving forward. If you don't fail, it means you're not doing the job. You have to fail to do the job. That's how you learn. So a specific example, you know, we if you back to early 2022 to mid 2022. We were scaling the drilling technology at Oak Ridge National Labs, and uh, we were struggling to get results. We were struggling to drill these pieces of rock as we expected to be able to drill them. And it took us the better part of six months to nine months to actually be able to escape from that. So if you're a company that um, you're burning you know, one to two million dollars a month, you know, six to nine months is not a joke. 
So how do you survive through that? Well, you have to take it into account. You have to actually fundraise for that too. You have to understand that nothing works the first time and you, you have to keep options open. I like to say that in my career as an engineer in a large corporation, we are taught to mitigate risk, to stage gate, to proceed very seriously. The game we're playing in venture, and especially in climate tech, is a little bit different. You do mitigate risk, but the prime directive is less that, and it's more maximize value. And there's a subtle difference. When you maximize value, you actually increase optionality. You pursue parallel paths at once, because if one of the paths fall, breaks down, you have others to support you. That's expensive, but that's actually faster and in the long term, less expensive than doing things serially. So yeah, that that's those are some big learnings and big differences from my previous career. And uh, like that one, we've had some others and we will continue to have. I tell my team, look, it's not going to be a walk in the park. You know, as we move forward and we scale this stuff, there's going to be challenges, but we'll overcome them because the goal is important and we need to succeed. Makes sense. And you mentioned your previous career. I want to talk about your current career as the CEO of Quaze. Was this the first time you had served as a chief executive officer? Indeed. Yeah, I had never been a chief executive officer. In fact, I had always been a very technical person. And one of the discussions early on was, would I be the CTO or the CEO of Quaze? And how did it end up with you being the CEO and not the CTO? I think Vinod had a very, very strong hand at that. He said, these companies are very, very, very hard. The separation between the two is not a valid assumption like you would have in other type of companies. You, the person making the fundamental strategic decisions, uh, getting the capital convinced in the world, needs to understand and be very competent with technology. If you're not, you're not going to be able to move it forward. Right. And would you say that the job as CEO was what you expected it would be? I had no expectations about the job itself. I said, okay, I do believe very strongly, very personally, I do believe that the work we're doing needs to be done. And that's my north right there, right? So in service of that north, the fact that geothermal, if not, if, if the world doesn't unlock geothermal like we're proposing, I don't think the world will transition energy for many, many reasons, maybe entirely different topic of conversation. So once I believed that, then I am in service of making that possible. And the CEO happens to be one of the most appropriate positions to actually get it done. Because you're in front of the world, evangelizing, convincing, moving capital, moving resources, uh, recruiting. So that part has been fascinating to see. And more fascinating even is to see how the world opens up back to you. You know, as an engineer very early on, I was like, oh my God, you know, how am I going to get the stuff I need? to do these, but the world starts coming to you. They start identifying with what you're saying. They start agreeing or being curious about your message. And support comes from unexpected places, both technical, uh, investors, business people. People say, hey, I have something that might be helpful to the kind of thing you're saying. Let me help you. These things you don't plan for. You just serve the mission and these things come to you. Having now had those experiences what advice would you have for someone who's going to be a CEO for the first time? So let me narrow it down. I think I think my advice applies to a certain category of companies. And being a CEO is very diverse. There's many, many types of companies out there in the world. 
with very, very different missions. But if we're talking about the type of companies like Waze, which are technology-driven, trying to open up a new pathway for humanity, I would advise our CEOs to be very strong to understand why they're doing this. Why do you want to do this? You know, if you want to do this for the money or for the fame, forget it. You're not going to get very far. You have to have a deep conviction of why this mission that you're about to undertake is an important one because it's going to try you big time. It's going to try you emotionally, physically. And if you don't have a deep conviction, you're going to drop it. The failure mode is going to be you and your, your own giving up with things. So that's my best advice. You know, once you believe in the thing, you're captured. Then, then you understand that you have to do this thing. And, and that doesn't mean you, need, you, you will succeed, but it means that you are in the best position I can think of to actually have a chance at succeeding. Well, I actually think that despite the, the limitation you put on that advice, making it applicable to a certain kind of, of uh, CEO and a certain kind of business, I actually think it's really helpful for people to hear that even beyond the, the world that Quaze is focused on. Um, it's good advice for all of us, a good reminder. Carlos, what, what would you describe as the, the, the typical day for you at Quaze as its CEO? So it changes a lot depending on what we're trying to get done. Right now, we're trying to close a financing round. So my typical day is talking to dozens of investors and trying to move paperwork forward. But that's atypical because we're not always closing financing rounds. So more typically, one of my key jobs is to talk to people internally and externally. Communication internally and externally is key. And it, it is increasingly less on the detail of execution. It used to be more tactical in the past when the team was smaller and I needed to roll up my sleeves and be an engineer with the team or roll up my sleeves and be an accountant with the team. But now it's less that and it's more like, why are we doing this? How do we do this? How do we increase optionality? What are possible outcomes? And, and that applies across business and technology. So if I were to sum it up, maybe maybe 30 to 50% of my time is that, and maybe the other 50% of the time is just talking to the world at large, all kinds. You know, there's people from government that reach out or we reach out to. There's uh, investors, always, always talking to investors. You know, I don't talk to investors just when I'm racing. I'm talking to investors all the time, talking to organizations that are popping up to actually support the mission or that are intersecting your space. So communication... Uh, and, and helping the world understand what you're doing and why you're doing it is a big part of that. And that also applies internally, you know, just because the, the team is growing all the time. So you, don't, you cannot assume that the team knows why we're doing what we're doing because it's continuously growing and changing and new people coming in. You mentioned the role you play as a fundraiser a couple of times in the conversation so far. We've talked about the importance of fundraising, the need to raise a significant amount of capital given the type of business Quaze is involved in. Would you say that that is the primary role of a CEO in a startup like Quaze? I believe yes, I think so. I mean, you could challenge me and say, well, but that's what the CFO can do. That's what um, third parties can do for hire. And I, I would kind of disagree with that. I mean, my CFO is very close to my fundraising efforts and he's an integral part of all of that. And we share the workload, but ultimately, you're not raising funds on a proven business models. You're not raising funds on a proven technology, not yet. You're not raising funds on a revenue book or, or, or an 
you know, future revenue potential. You're not raising funds on that. You're raising funds on what this can become if you succeed. So there's nobody better than the CEO to tell that story. Right. And how would you describe what the experience has been like for you at Quaze in raising capital? Has it been challenging? Has Have you learned things from the process that you would share with others who have never been through it before? Yeah. So it's always challenging and it's a responsibility. You know, when you are taking capital, it shouldn't be just transactional. You're really doing a handshake with these people supporting you and you should be respectful for their time and their interest. You should inform them going forward, you know. So I think the personal side is very important, you know. Making sure that you develop those relationships over time is fundamentally important. There are people that will always opportunistically come in and seeing that a good syndicate is forming will go in and give you money. That's easy. That's very transactional. But the most interesting ones are the ones that take two, three, four years to handshake with you. My current major investors, the top three, are exactly in that category. These are relationships that started years before we even transacted. It's fascinating to hear you talk about that extended time period of talking to a potential investor, building the relationship. What goes on over such an extended period of time? How do you interact or how much interaction is there over over months or years, as you mentioned, before actually asking somebody to, to write a check? I think these are touch points, you know, like you cannot be doing a weekly call with people. Um, you look for opportunities. I would say, hey, I'm in town. Hey, Want to grab a coffee? Want to catch up? Can you tell me more about your fund? You know, you have to remember that the people on the other side are also on a mission. Everybody is the hero of their own story. Everybody's doing their thing. So you have to have a genuine interest for what they're doing because they're going to become your partners. So you want to know what they're up to as well. It's not just you, 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 you telling them on why they should invest in you. It's, hey, what are you up to? What's the latest in your fund? Have you raised the other one? How's it turning out? You know, having a real conversation. And I heard you mention in there, Carlos, that you actually do a lot of asking questions, not just answering them. Does that help you identify which investor, assuming there's going to be interest that you'd rather partner with? And, and kind of how do you evaluate which investor is going to be the right fit for you as a CEO? Very much so. I mean, looking at what investors are investing in, it's it's a strong uh, factor in considering. Like, I, I don't want my major investor to be all software investments and ways. You know, you have to look at their portfolios. You have to look at their partners. Look also at the young people. Why are the young people joining? You know, when you see the associates, the analysts, the principals, talk to them. You know, what's moving them into that position? And talk to other founders who are in their portfolio already. This, you, know, you need to do as much diligence on your investors as they do on you. <laughs> and speaking of doing diligence on third parties, beyond investors, I'd like to ask you about building a team. What kind of diligence do you engage in as part of conversations with potential employees before you hire someone? What is it that you're looking for and how do you learn as to whether that person fits what you're looking for? Intrinsic motivation to me is one of the key ones. You know, again, you're looking for partners on 
a very, very difficult, but very rewarding journey. So the last thing you want to to have in a, in a first date, you call it that, is talking about compensation and how much money you're going to pay me and what my my option package looks like. That's transactional. That comes later. You can always align on those things. But why are you doing this? Why are you stepping out of your life and, I, and uh, your current life and your current job to do this? Why, why is it even interesting that a company like ours could be the next step for you? So intrinsic motivation to me is very, very important. Next to that is competence, right? And competence doesn't necessarily mean the ability to do the particular job that you think you're hiring for because there's no such thing. You know, these companies are in expansionary mode and the job is always bigger than what you put in a job description. So, so you just want to make sure that the person you're hiring has some level of competence where they can be complementary and useful to the team but also the ability to grow into that expansionary world of a startup. And lastly, culture, right? The ability to work with others. You know, I'd rather hire somebody that is, it's very hard to judge this, but if you can, that is less of a performer, but better as a human than a very, very high performer and not so good as a human or as a team worker, because these things, very close quarters, for a long time, right? It's it's really a good analogy. And and if there's somebody who doesn't work well with others, this is just not going to work. It doesn't matter how good they are, it's just not going to work because you need to trust and delegate gigantic portions of the company to every individual member. And if they don't work well with others, that part of the company is going to wither and die and stagnate. That makes sense. And thinking about that culture that you're creating as CEO after people have joined and you're building this business, as you mentioned earlier, you have 40 employees now. What's the management style that you use? So I am very hands-off as a manager. Um, I like to have my direct reports be very able to drive things themselves to a great extent. I also like to make sure that I know how they're feeling, you know, how they're coping What's worrying them? I, I I don't want facades. I don't want pretension. I don't want people telling me what they think I want to hear. I want people to tell me what is truly going on, and that takes trust and building that trust. So so anything that contributes to building that trust and that level of communication is always going to be one of the key themes of that I introduce into my management staff. And you talked about working well together is something you're trying to identify. Even when you've identified that, there, I'm sure, are situations where members of your management team in particular might disagree with one another. Uh, you mentioned you know, your CFO earlier and how the two of you share the workload. Could you talk about what happens when members of the management team and you don't agree on something and how you address that kind of an issue and, and, and hopefully resolve the disagreement? Yeah, I think we talk about it, communicate, communicate, communicate. We do it as a team, as a leadership. We're talking about five people in the room, right? And um, at the end of the day, somebody needs to make a decision. and It doesn't need to be me always. So for the team to see that, hey, we're going my VP of engineering's way this time, and we're going to trust that and go and support that is just as important as for me saying, I'm going to step in and make an executive decision. Please support me and let's go forward. 
You know, I think people will understand that. People want to be heard. They want to understand that you understand their point of view, but they also understand that at some point, a decision needs to be made and it, it cannot always align with everybody's wishes. That would be ideal if you can work it out. But if it cannot, we have to be able to stand down and say, okay, trust you. Let's go. Let's do it your way and not come back later and say, oh, I told you so, you were wrong. You know, no, that's that. We have to be able to, to own these things as a team, not as individuals. Another topic I'd like to ask you about today, Carlos, which does, at least indirectly, I think, relate to culture, is diversity. Can you share your thoughts on the current state of the energy industry in the area of diversity? So I think diversity is, it's never a goal. It's not about metrics. It's not about KPIs. It's a journey. It's the journey of getting out of, out of your head. You know, because you will develop blind spots and you will develop echo chambers every time. So diversity is a mechanism, in my opinion, to break away from that. It is a pursuit that you have to have. I think in the energy industry, there's room for more diversity, but I don't think the problem comes from the tactical. I think it comes from the strategic. And let me explain that. I think, you know, if I look at my own company, and we try to run diversity metrics, you could always do better. And the question is, why don't we do better? Well, it's because when we go and look for ways to diversify, we find ourselves with a limited pool of candidates that we can pull into the other requirements of the job. So I think the way to solve diversity is to start much earlier. You know, by the time you're trying to fulfill a job in a company, that's almost like the end of the road. Why don't we start these things much earlier, like encouraging young students to follow paths that are not the ones they would normally follow? Because it is through the diversification of those pathways that diversity then becomes very easy on the labor force on the other end, right? So I, I think that's how I tend to think about it. I don't like to think about percentage of men versus women, percentage of uh, races, percentage of ethnic backgrounds, you know, to me, you're looking for those qualities that I talked about before. And if your poll includes a diverse set of genders and ethnic backgrounds, then it's a very easy thing to address. I think that's where we're missing. We're missing the supply of that diversity in the energy industry at large and in many other industries, in my opinion. Right. That, that makes sense to me. It's really a broader societal issue that we can all help work on together. But as you point out, at a much earlier stage and more directly with, it sounds like, you know, education and providing opportunities and, and encouraging people yeah. to enter into fields and, and take on new roles that they haven't always had the opportunity or don't currently have the opportunity to, um, to take on. Yeah, I, I think the return on that investment is far greater than trying to maintain KPIs at the corporate level. I mean, that helps too. Don't get me wrong, but I think to really, really, really nail this one, you have to swim upstream. Right. Before I let you go, Carlos, I'd like to ask you about your career. Looking back, if you could go back in time and change one thing about your career, what would it be? <laughs> I wouldn't. I did react to instinct repeatedly throughout my career at the instinct to move over and be very risk-taker. You know, 
for example, very specific example, 2017, living in England with my family, you know, my wife, three kids, one of them physically disabled, you know, not a, not a simple situation. And I just walked into my boss's office and said, hey, I need to move on. No particular reason. I don't have a competing job. I like this place very much. I love the company, but I think I need to go and do something different and bigger and greater, still energy related. And the ability to do that, to step out of your comfort zone and do that is something that that has helped me look back and say, you know what? No, it's all been very accurate, not by design, but because I'm mostly responding to the things I really, really want to do. And in that answer, I hear some advice to people who are starting out in their career. I think I heard you say, step out of your comfort zone. So is that fair to say that that would be something now that you've had the experiences that you had that you'd share with individuals who are just starting out in their career? I think so. And that's very personal. That doesn't mean the same for everybody. That's only a decision that people can make. But ask yourself, what's keeping me from responding to this feeling, this inkling, this instinct, whatever you want to call it? What's keeping me from doing that? And if you open that up, if you have that conversation with yourself, you will normally discover that there's fear or concern of something. You're afraid to step out of some comfort zone and challenge that. Challenge that because it could be keeping you from doing something you really, 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 really want to do. And you're keeping yourself from it. Well, now that I hear you answer that question, Carlos, I think I'm going to take that as advice personally for me. I think it's great. I didn't just start out of my career, but I think I can do those things more consciously and more frequently. So thank you for for sharing those thoughts with us. You're welcome. Thank you, Josh. And thank you for being on the show today, Carlos. I always enjoy our conversations. Today was no different. And you know, thinking back on our discussion today, I think the one thing that stood out most to me, if I could just pick one item, was when you mentioned that there would be a low probability of success in what you were doing, but your goal was to have a high impact and potentially change the world at Quays. So I do hope you accomplish that goal, and I wish you and your team the best of luck in that journey. Thank you, Josh. And you know you're a part of that journey too, so I appreciate you and your team. Thanks, Carlos. And thanks to our listeners for listening to the show today. Until next time on Client Corner, keep on building. <laughs>